You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. As we uh, approach the end of our study in the book of Nehemiah, our reading this morning will come from Nehemiah chapter 11, and I have to... uh, I believe it says on the screen behind me that I'm supposed to read all 36 verses, but you know what? Dave Strunk's not here today. (laughs) And so, with apologies to Eleanor, who's working this screen and all the rest of you, I do not intend, I'm I'm going to read the first three or four verses, and then I'm going to start to skip down, and I'll try to point out where I am, but what I want you to get through the bulk of this book are a summary of people and a summary of names. I will say this, as I will explain here in a few minutes, if there were ever a time to read the names, this morning would be that morning. I'm not going to do it. Uh, Beginning in chapter 1, Nehemiah 11, chapter 1. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem, These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the descendants of Judah, and then picking up at verse 6, we're told, the descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem totaled 468 men of standing, Verse 7, from the descendants of Benjamin, and then we're given a series of names. And then in verse 8, we are told 928 men. Verse 10, from the priest, Jedidiah, the son of Joreb, beginning and skipping to verse 12, and their associates who carried on the work for the temple, 822 men. Adoniah, the son of Jeraham, verse 13, and his associates who were head of families, 242 men. Amashai, son of Azarel, the son of Azah, the son of Meshavmoth, the son of Imar, and his associates who were men of standing, 128. Their chief officer was Zabdil, son of Hagadalan, verse 15. From the Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hashab, in verse 18, we're told the Levites in the city totaled 284. Verse 19, the gatekeepers, Akab, Talam, and their associates who kept a watch at the gates, 172 men. Verse 20, the rest of the Israelites with the priests and Levites were in all the towns of Judah, each on their own ancestral property. Skipping to verse 25, as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kareth Arba and its surrounding elements. And in verse 30, so they were living all the way from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnon. And finally concluding in verse 36, some of the divisions of the Levites and Judah settled in Benjamin. This is the word of the Lord. I'll pray real quick. Father, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for this people. They are your people who are gathered here. I offer to you, I offer to you all the words that are about to be spoken. I give them to you to lift up, to cast down with whatever you please as your heart. These things I ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. It was a bright, clear, and a bitterly 
bitterly cold morning in January of 1961 when the renowned American poet, Robert Frost, stood on the steps of the Capitol building behind a podium much like this one. He was there for the inauguration of John F. Kennedy as president. Kennedy and Frost were friends, and Kennedy had asked Frost if he would consider writing a new poem, a poem of dedication, and presenting it at the inauguration, and Frost agreed. The problem came that morning when Frost tried to read what he had written. You see, when he stepped to the podium and opened his notebook and looked down, there in the very bright glare of the morning sun, he realized that he could not make out a single word that was on the page. He couldn't see the words. And because it was a new poem, it was not something he had fully committed to memory yet. He stopped and he started a couple of times. At one point, someone took Lyndon Johnson's top hat and tried to shade the page. That didn't work. Nothing worked. And so finally, in a moment of resignation, Frost closed his notebook, looked out at the crowd, and made a spontaneous, fateful, and historic decision to recite the words of another poem, a poem he had written some 20 years earlier, the words of which he knew by heart. Frost looked at the crowd and spoke these words. The land was ours before we were the land's. She was our land for a hundred years before we were her people. She was ours in Massachusetts, in Virginia, but we were England's still, colonials, possessing what we still were unpossessed by, possessed by what we now no more possessed. Something we were withholding made us weak until we found that it was ourselves we were withholding from our land of living and forthwith found salvation in surrender, such as we were giving ourselves outright, such as we were giving ourselves outright. No, I do not recite that poem because today is, today is the 4th of July. God's honest truth is that some six, eight weeks ago, as I am reading through Nehemiah chapter 11, I'm beginning to work on this sermon with no thought whatsoever as to exactly what day it's going to be given. The words of this poem, which is The Gift Outright by Robert Frost, the words of that poem keep coming back to me over and over again because the poem in general and a couple of lines in particular speak directly and exactly to the circumstance that Nehemiah is facing as the events of chapter 11 begin to unfold. Two lines in particular, we're talking about the relationship of the people to the land where Frost says they were possessing of what they still were unpossessed by. The concept being, you can have something. It could be yours. You can own it. And yet there can be a lacking that comes from the fact that you have not fully given yourself to it. And then he says, you find salvation in surrender, giving yourselves outright. Those are concepts that describe something that was lacking in the people of Nehemiah's day. And as I will talk about here in a few minutes, I simply ask the question, I ask the question, is it possible that those concepts also describe something that might be lacking in us? A lot has happened to bring us to this point in the story. And I know we've talked about this, and I, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it doesn't hurt to refresh. The people of Israel were carried off, were carried 
into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. They're carried to Babylon, and for 140 years they are there. The people of Israel, and specifically, it is the people of Jerusalem who are carried away. And then new kings come to power, uh, and they are released. They are allowed to go back, and they start trickling back in. They come back to their homeland. They come back to this, the land that was promised to their forefathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They come back to the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God. And then, as we have seen, true to the vision that Nehemiah had, they rebuilt the wall around the city. 52 days, an incredible thing. Jerusalem is now a place that is safe and is secure. And as we have seen over the last few weeks, they had a spiritual awakening of sorts. They, we saw where they stood and they listened to, Nehemiah, uh, to Ezra, the prophet. They listened for hours as he read the, the word of the law. And, and their hearts were broken by that. Uh, they, they, they wept. And all of these things were good. All of these things that have happened are good things. But none of these things were an end in and of themselves. God's plan for this people is not represented by their coming back into the land, by their rebuilding the wall, by even having a spiritual awakening. That is not the ultimate objective that God has for this people. God's plan for this people is that the people of God would live in, would dwell in, would abide in the city of God and thereby complete their relationship with God. And that has not happened yet. As chapter 11 begins, Jerusalem, for the most part, is an empty city. There are a few people who live there, a smattering of people, but the people as a whole have not committed themselves to the city. As they came back into the land, they were content. They settled on the outskirts, on the uh, towns and villages around the city. They have grown comfortable there. They have grown content there. They are content to live on the fringe of what God has for them. Jerusalem is a place they love. It's a place they go visit. It's a place that identifies who they are, but it is not their home. It's not the place they dwell. It is not the place they find themselves when they wake up first thing in the morning. It is not the place they go home to at the end of the day. Jerusalem is not the place where the moments of their lives take place. And that is not in keeping with a full purpose that God has for this people. You might say, you might say that the people possess the city, but the city does not yet possess them. They have not given themselves to the city. And Nehemiah understands that for God's plan to be complete, that needs to change. They need to dwell there. And so as chapter 11 begins, we see what may be the first ever lottery. Put in place. Uh, there is that people agree to submit themselves to a system where one out of every ten families will be picked, will be chosen to go live as a representative of all the people. They will go live in Jerusalem. One out of every ten families. And then in verse three, we're also told that there are people who 
who are not chosen but who volunteer to go. They choose to go live in the city. And we're told that God, that the people honor all of those, everyone. The people honor those people. And God honors them. God honors them by listing their names, and I didn't read them. But uh, they're honored for the choice they make. By my math, if you go through and you add up all of those names and numbers, there are some 3,044 men who dwell in the, in the city, and you can, by implication, assume that's going to include their families, their wives, their children, their servants, probably as many as 15, maybe 20,000 people who will now inhabit the city, who will dwell there. When you think about it, it's no small thing to move to Jerusalem. It's no small thing for these people to make that commitment. You see, living in Jerusalem, there, there are two or three things that come to my mind. Number one, if you choose to live in Jerusalem, you may have to leave some stuff behind. I mean, these people have been living in these towns and villages. They will have property there. They may have businesses there. They may have things, career, things they do there. And to get up, to, to make the decision that I'm going to live in Jerusalem means that to some degree, you may have to leave that behind. There may be friends and family and relationships in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm sorry, outside of Jerusalem, that you are going to have to leave behind. If you want to leave, live in Jerusalem, there may be some things that you're going to have to leave behind. The second thing that occurs to me is if you want to live in Jerusalem it will almost assuredly mean that you are going to venture into what is unknown and uncertain. These people, in living in the towns and the villages, would have settled into daily living routines. It would have been comfortable. It would have been familiar. Uh, they would have established their lives there. If you move into Jerusalem, all that is going to be lost. If you move into Jerusalem you may find that every you're moving into the unknown and that every day is going to be a new adventure in faith. And last but not least, it occurs to me, if you want to live in Jerusalem, you need to accept the fact that in some measure you will become a target. As was in Nehemiah's day and as it continues even to this day, there are those who would destroy Jerusalem if they could, and there are those who would destroy those who would live in Jerusalem if they could. And yes, I understand there is now a new wall in place. But guess what? There was a wall in place 140 years earlier when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the wall and destroyed the city. So making the choice to live in Jerusalem means that you are placing yourself in the center of a conflict. If you choose to live in Jerusalem you're probably going to get lots of opportunity to depend daily on the presence, on the promises, on the provision, and on the protection of God. That's what living in Jerusalem means. People in Nehemiah's day understood that. And that made that choice. 
they decided they would not be content living on the fringe of what God wanted for them. They would make a commitment, they would give themselves to the city, and they did. They found salvation in surrendering themselves to this place, to this city, that they would abide and dwell and live there. I think there's a lot in this story that speaks to us today, an enormous amount. When you think about it, when you think about it, we are a people in exile who have come home. We have come home. For, most, for the most part, the last 15 months, we have lived in captivity to a pandemic that disrupted basically every part of our lives. And it disrupted this. It disrupted our services. It disrupted the relationships that we have with each other. I, I, I will never forget the, the vague but very distinct sense of unease that I felt in March of 2020 when the word came down that we were going to suspend our services. I didn't disagree with that. I understood that, but I did not like it. And more than not liking it, 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 it there was this sense of, mm, what does this mean? And I remember in the weeks that followed how odd it was to get up on Sunday mornings and have nowhere to go. And Ben, I do thank you. I will tell you that Donna and I fell into the routine of, of taking my computer and we would go out on the, on the, on the deck and there we would have you know, atrium, Zoom atrium or whatever we, we called it. And I was blessed by, I was blessed by that. I, was, I, was, I enjoyed seeing your little faces there in little squares on my computer. And yet I will tell you the truth. You see, there was something about that that in my mind only heightened the fact that we were separated, we were apart, we were in captivity. Then came what has to be the strangest Easter I have ever experienced in my life. If you remember, it was, <laughs> unlike Easter, it was dark and overcast here in East Tennessee, and Donna and I sat and worshiped on our couch. We, we listened to Amy and your beautiful music, and we watched Dave, and then <clears throat> later that afternoon, somehow found a broadcast of Andre Vicelli singing Easter music. And it closed, his, his, it closed with him singing Amazing Grace, back, back set against a video montage of empty cities and empty streets. I remember it was the strangest feeling. It was like having this, this mixture of loss and hope all poured into the same vessel. And then came last summer. Yes, we finally came back together. We, we met out there. I will confess to you, I will confess to you, don't repeat this, I kind of enjoyed having my own table. I really did, you know. <laughs> but we were together again, kind of. I could see you, you know, from here up. I couldn't touch you, couldn't hug you, couldn't shake your hand. We were together, but we were separated. We were still held captive. And then, and then somehow, you know, the, the fall gave way to the early winter, and then come winter, once again, the pandemic raised its head, and once again, we suspended services. And for the second time in a calendar year, we lost one of the major days on the church calendar. We were separated. We were apart at Christmas. <laughs> I remember sitting in my living room on Christmas Eve watching the snow fall out of the sky. When does that ever happen in East Tennessee? 
And I remember thinking to myself, God has the, just this incredible sense of irony that he would punctuate this very, the end of this very hard year in such a beautiful way. Then came January and February, long, dark days of January and February. And I remember thinking to myself on multiple occasions, will this ever end? And here we are, just a few months later. Thanks to the miracle of a vaccine, we have rebuilt the wall in the sense that this place is now a place that is safe and secure. We can come here. We can have church. And I have to ask the question, Is this somehow an end in and of itself? Is this what we're is is this what all we, is this what we suffered for and went through all of that for just so we can come back in here and we can meet in the Lyceum and we can have church? I think not. You see, if somehow we are comfortable and content with the fact that we now can meet together. If, if, if we see this as the end result, then I'm telling you, I think what we're doing is that we are a people living on the fringe of what God has for us and what God calls us to. In our, in our New Testament, in our gospel reading, I think there were, I don't know, 12 verses, and I think Jesus uses the word abide, abide, over a dozen times. It's important to know the context of John 15 when Jesus is talking about that. He is about to die. They have had the Last Supper, and as this conversation in John 15 takes place, Jesus is walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where he is going to struggle, where he literally will perspire drops of blood. He will struggle in his humanity with the will of the Father, and yet... As he is on his way to Gethsemane, the focus of his heart that evening is you. It's you. His infinite desire as he faces death is that we would enter into a deep and personal relationship with him, that we would abide in the heart of God. We would abide in the heart of God. We would dwell there that we would make the heart of God our home. That the heart of God is the place that we find ourselves every morning when we wake up. That the heart of God is where we go back to at the end of the day. That the heart of God would be the place where the moments of our lives take place. The verses from Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, makes it clear what the heart of Christ is. He says, I, I, I stand. I stand and I wait for you. I long for you. My heart loves you with a love that is infinite. And I desire deeply to enter into relationship with you. And that will be your choice. Is it possible, as we have come through all of this, as we have come back into this place, as we now can meet together, is it possible that we are content with this? Or is it possible 
that this is not an end in and of itself, that this is just the step into something more and deeper. Is it possible that we are a people who are content living on the fringe of what God wants for us, or will we move deeper? Is it possible? I just ask the question. Just ask the question. Is it possible that we are the people of God, and we are, possessing the things of God, and we are, but is it possible that as the people of God possessing the things of God, we have not allowed the things of God to fully possess us? Is it something, is it, is it possible that there is something that we are withholding from the heart of God and that what we are withholding from the heart of God is ourselves and that by that we make ourselves weak and that we will find salvation in surrender giving ourselves such as we are to the heart of God outright let me pray Father it makes no sense it makes no sense whatsoever that you love us like you do it, it boggles our minds of all the things in the universe, you desire intimacy with us. And you wait on us to answer. I pray that we would not be a people content with just being in this place and having church. I pray that we would be a people having come home that we would now choose and commit ourselves to live, to live in the heart of God, to dwell there. Let it be so. Let it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.